You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, David Bayer, Chart.io co-founder and CEO, principal at Amplify Partners, and part of the founding team at Patients Know Best, chats with Risto Mikulainen, professor of computer science and neuroscience at the University of Texas at Austin. They chat about evolutionary computation, its applications in deep learning, and how it's inspired by biology. Enjoy the episode. Why don't we start with um, with your background and and how you got to your current your current role? Yeah, so um, I got my PhD in 1990 at UCLA, Computer Science Department, um, and then immediately I, I started as a professor at uh, University of Texas Austin in a computer science department as well. Um, and um, my dissertation and, and, and work early on was focused on building uh, neural network models of uh, cognitive science, and that means language processing and memory um, uh, in particular. And that's that's continued throughout my career. We've uh, dust off those models lately to push towards understanding um, cognitive dysfunction like schizophrenia and uh, aphasia in bilinguals, even though it started early on, like 1980s already. Um, and neural networks have always been uh, the, the main focus, uh, using them uh, to cognitive science and engineering. So in addition to that cognitive science, I've did a little, quite a bit of work actually on computational neuroscience, taking it down towards the neural structure. Cognitive science models are more of an abstraction of behavior, as in as in psychology. Whereas in some other areas like uh, visual processing, we can model the neural circuitry underlying the visual system, and that we did for uh, quite a while, for a decade or two. Uh, built models of uh, the primary visual cortex and made predictions about the, the circuitry and about behavior there. Um, and then, more recently, more and more, we've been moving to um, evolution of neural network networks. So we optimize neural networks using evolutionary computation as as, as the method. We started in 1991 or so already, but uh, it's it's been expanding. And most of the focus there is has been on on engineering, building control systems uh, for robotics and game agents and so on. But but also more recently, we also um, uh, have discovered that it it has a lot of the same challenges as the cognitive science models that we have to build systems that have memory and learning and communication and so on. So these fields are starting to come together somewhat, uh, and uh, and that's uh, so I've worked mostly with uh, PhD students um, and graduated some almost thirty I guess now, and many of them have continued and have their own research groups. Um, and uh, most recently, we've started to reach out to the real world to the. Uh, uh, high-tech industry, uh, AI, of course, is experiencing a, a huge um, uh, set of excitement right now, and and part of that is, uh, I think, it, is that uh, there are these real-world applications, and I think uh, the field is ready to to build them. So that's what we're doing now. Okay, so great. Can you um give some some background and explanation on how evolutionary computation works in general, and then how that how that gets applied to to, to deep learning? Yeah, sure. So. Much of the field now um, is focused and, and maybe inspired by deep learning, uh, which is a supervised learning method on neural networks. Uh, the idea is that um, there's a lot of data, big data, uh, and uh, we are uh, learning to understand it. And most of the work is on supervised applications where you do know what you want. You're doing weather prediction, stock market prediction, uh, predicting what will happen if you perform this action when you're driving a car. or or maybe Siri, you are you're trying to classify 
the speech signal into into words, phonemes and words, perhaps sentences. Uh, so you know what the right answer is, and uh, you are learning a, a statistical model, nonlinear model of um, of that data, and then you can use it in future uh, future situations. Um, there's also unsupervised learning, and some of the deep learning originally started with unsupervised learning, learning the structure of the data, uh, what kind of clusters there are, what things are similar to other things, uh, and and that's a useful internal representation perhaps for a neural network, uh, and it's also insightful that you understand your data. Um, now, the third way uh, of posing a problem might be from the point of view of reinforcement learning, where you don't know what the right answer is, like if you are um, driving a car or playing a, a, a game, board game, chess, or even video game, nobody knows what the right answer, what right actions are, the optimal actions. Um, and you also get feedback very rarely. You play the whole game of chess and you win or lose. And then you know that if you lose, say, that you made some bad choices, which ones were those? If you win, which ones were the good actions? Um, so that's a reinforcement learning problem. You get feedback periodically, every now and then, and it's only going to tell you how well you did, not what the right actions would have been. And you have to find those right actions by exploration, trying different things and seeing how well they uh, uh, turn out. Um, so that's where evolutionary computation comes in. It can be posed as a reinforcement, a way of solving reinforcement learning problems. Uh, there's some fitness function in the world, and you are evolving a solution that uh, does as well as possible along that, along that uh, fitness function. Um, so there's a whole literature on reinforcement learning that's based on a bit different method than evolution, and it's useful to compare those two um, to understand where we're coming from. So reinforcement learning uh, is most often uh, posed as a value function learning problem, that you're trying to learn a function that could be represented by a neural network, for instance, where you're looking at a particular state and you're considering an action in that state, and then you're learning the value for that action in that state, how good it is, how, how likely it is to lead to a good outcome. Um, and this approach works quite well if you have a small state space, an action space, and uh, you are learning numbers for a table. Uh, for each state and action, there's an entry in the table. Uh, and it is a problem to scale it up to the real world, which might be very large, very continuous. Uh, so, for instance, if you are balancing a, uh, a pole, like a broom balancing, task, it's relatively easy because uh, you can control the broom only based on some, something like 162 states. There's one number in that state telling you whether to push left or right, and you can perfectly well control the system that way. But if you expand it to automated driving or robotics or maze running or robotic soccer, the state space is just a lot larger, and it's very hard um, uh, to represent as a table. And it's even hard to represent it as a neural network, which in principle could interpolate between the table entries and expand the space that way. Uh, but what's even more difficult is that um, in many cases in the real world, you do not have a full state description. You don't know completely where you are. Let's say that you're in a maze. Many corners look the same, and you cannot tell where you are in the maze. And now, if you're trying to learn to associate a value for an action in a state, you don't know what state, and you don't know where to put it in your table. You don't know what to make of that example. Um, and if you have such a problem, it's called POMDP, partially observable um, decision process, uh, then standard reinforcement learning, the value function-based reinforcement learning, does not really work that well. Um, and these are uh, the um, this describe the characteristics of the type of problem where 
evolution and computation and can and can actually be effective. And in particular, the neuroevolution approach that we've been working on since the 1991 first studies that we did. Um, and that is that we're using evolution to construct a neural network, which then looks at the state representation, however noisy or incomplete it is. Uh, it gets some sense of values and, and then tries to, um, at, its, at its output, suggest um, an action that's most likely to be beneficial, correct or optimal or, or effective. And this is a much simpler task. It's a much simpler learning problem. You are looking at the state description and, and guessing what the right uh, action is. Um, and the beauty of it is that you can start with a random collection of policies of these neural networks that implement that mapping. And some of them perform better than others. They are full representations of a policy already from the start. And you can start um, searching for improvements on those that do better in more states and gradually make progress that way. Um, and, yeah. um, is there any, um, by the way, in terms of starting the starting initial conditions, is there, rather than a, a, pure, a purely random distribution, um, is there any notion of using um, a Bayesian prior to, to yeah. tune the sure. starting conditions? You, you can certainly, if you know, if you have knowledge about your domain, you can certainly program that into your initial population. Um, and one, Does that perform yeah, better than, than pure? Uh, well, it, it can. It depends on, 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 on the task and the knowledge. So one important component of evolution is always diversity. And if you are programming up some knowledge, uh, like everybody in your population shares a certain amount of knowledge, you are actually stepping on diversity already a little bit. So it's better be information and knowledge that actually is useful for everybody. Because evolution thrives on discovering no solutions that you don't already know that are, are diverse. Uh, so in that sense, um, yes, you can program in some knowledge if you know that this is already uh, important and it will have to be there. You are starting halfway there. You are making uh, individuals in the initial population that already have a clue, and then you are searching from there on. on the, but the other end, that, yeah. might, that might impinge on the, the wacky creative solution. Exactly. Right? Exactly, exactly. So there are many examples of evolution discovering surprising solutions, and if you program up your conception of what the solution should look like, it would be much harder to discover those, those creative solutions. But I needed to add one more thing about why, um, uh, why the neuroevolution works on those PomDB domains. I've talked about having a very large state space and why, because we're doing policy search, it's, it's easier to get started and easier to make progress. But an important component of neuroevolution is that in those PomDB tasks, the neural network can be recurrent. And that means that it will make a decision based on not just what the state looks like now, but the entire history of, this, of states and decisions through which you've gone. So if you get to the corner in the maze, you uh, might look the same as many other corners, but you remember how you got there. And in that sense, you might know what the right action is, uh, where to go from there. And in that sense, recurrent neural networks that are evolved uh, can solve uh, some of the PomDP tasks that would otherwise be very difficult to solve. Um, you cannot do the same in reinforcement learning because not only is the state space large, but now when you're looking at the entire history, how you got there, you exploded the state space even more. Um, and the problem is that you're trying to learn these individual numbers when, um, when it, whereas in uh, uh, evolution computation, you're learning a whole policy at once and, 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 and modifying the whole policy at once. And therefore, it can be effective even, be, even with large spaces and PomDB. So that's, yeah. that's the special niche for neuroevolution. You could take, though, the concept of recurrence or memory and, and, and bake that into a traditional reinforcement learning model 
and how 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 does that how does that still not what why is the evolutionary model plus recurrence better than building memory into an individual agent with with an understanding of you know states present and past right so yeah you could certainly so value functions often are implemented as neural networks because they interplay between states and 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 you have a hope of expanding them to large state spaces now um if you're making that network recurrent, uh, it's making a decision based on a single sequence and associating it to va- a value for that particular sequence. But that means that you are really in a needle, a needle in a hail stack because you, you have just one sequence uh, and then value for one, um, one action. You cannot even uh, learn about the values of other actions in that state. You don't know how the actions, uh, the values would change if you got in some other way to that, uh, that, situa- that same state. So it's making the feedback values from which you learn even less uh, dense. So you have very few cases from which you try to construct a system that would allow you to perform. Uh, and that's, that's a crucial difference. The recurrency doesn't help you there because it's a separating your numbers more instead of uh, bringing them together. In, in a neural network that actually gives you the action directly instead of a value, you are learning a mapping from a large set of um, states that have history to a smaller set of actions, or maybe they're continuous or ranges. And you are already performing the entire policy right there instead of having to construct it from these values that are very uh, few and far between. So that's the difference. How do you know at any given point from an evolutionary, using it in the context of evolution, I suppose without evolution as well, to balance um, the awareness of potential local maxima versus some global, global right. optimum? Yeah, that's a very good question. So what we are trying to um, do is uh, optimize a nonlinear function. And, and this has been a branch of applied mathematics for a long time, and there's really no guaranteed method for doing that. Um, nonlinear functions, you can never tell where the global optimum is. You can only find good optima, local optima. And some methods are more susceptible for that problem than others. And in particular, in neural networks, this has been a discussion as long as neural networks have existed, that, that they will follow the gradient and they will get stuck in, in, in local optimum. And that indeed is a problem if you have a single solution like a neural network that you're modifying using some, say, supervised method like backpropagation or deep learning methods, that you are modifying it step by step, following the gradient and getting stuck. In that sense, Evolution computation actually has a significant advantage by its very nature because it's a population-based search method. So you start with a population of a large number of potential solutions, you know, hundreds maybe, um, or whatever, I mean, even more, thousands. And and you are spreading them out in the solution space as widely as possible. And now, maybe some of them you are modifying and they get stuck in local minima, but there will be others that are in other parts of the space. And they don't care about, you know, this one solution or a couple of solutions that are stuck in local minima here. Uh, they are exploring other promising parts of the space. So you are hedging your bet. You're spreading solutions around the space, and, and local minima are uh, not nearly as that much of a problem because search does not get stuck on one local minima. Uh, moreover, there are methods like, uh, or uh, uh, genic operators like crossover, where you take two solutions that are both pretty good. They are selected because their performance is good, and you're crossing them over. And the idea is that you are combining components of two solutions right. to form a new one. Now, yep. even if both individual parents are stuck in a local minima, this crossover could be somewhere else in the space, and it would escape the local minima, and therefore you get out of it. Um, 
So there are these factors that make it, or, or features of evolution computation that make it much less susceptible for that. But there's another, there's a problem that is well known in evolution computation that's related to local minima, and that's premature convergence. And that means that if you allocate all your resources to some solutions that seem to be good in the beginning, they may gradually, their population may start looking homogenous, that everybody looks like everybody else. You're trying to optimize a single peak. In, a, in essence, you're stuck in a local minimum. So much of the work uh, in evolution computation has focused on dealing with that problem, how to maintain diversity. And, and mm -hmm. there's modern methods that do that quite well. You add a secondary diversity objective. You're not just trying to do well in a task, but you're also at the same time trying to maintain diversity. There are ways of uh, forming islands that you never allow to converge. Um, there's just simply you can add more noise, more uh, mutation, uh, and you can decide who to cross over. There are many different ways of dealing with that, but that is indeed um, the evolutionary computation perspective on local minima, and there are ways of, of dealing with that too. Interesting. And is it, um, is it possible to ever run these without a goal? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, so, or one more or less, their own yeah, goal without it being pre programmed? Yeah, yeah, that's that's very, very, very interesting. Because until now, a lot of the um, uh, evolution computation research has focused on optimizing a function, and function is defined in some mathematical way. So you can just ask and query it, and every solution has a has a uh, value. It turns out that um, it works very well in many cases. But what you are doing then is you are taking incremental steps towards a single goal, and it turns out that the really hard problem in the world, like building cognitive architectures with memory learning, communication, um, and, and in general, complex systems, uh, they, don't, they don't really work that way. What you need instead is, is, is stepping stones. You need something that is an, in, uh, um, an intermediate solution, and together with some other intermediate solutions, you can combine them into a solution of a bigger problem. Um, and one way to make those stepping stones happen is to reward not how well you do in a uh, objective function in the mathematical sense. But you reward, for instance, just novelty, being able to discover things that are unlike anything you've seen before. Uh, and in that sense, you let evolution run on its own and discover things that are novel. Turns out they are also interesting a lot of times, because in order to be really novel, you have to know something about domain, how to change the solutions so they are very different from others. And you are capturing, you're learning about the domain and what is uh, the regularity and structure in it so that you can get as far as possible in the novelty space. And it turns out that even if, you re even if you don't reward objectives at all, for instance, uh, running a maze, a robot that has to get out of the maze, it's, it's a novel behavior to explore different parts of the maze, and therefore you might actually get out of there, and you find solutions um, because they happen to be the interesting novel ones. Um, and, and this is... Um, also, in some sense, it's more like the biological evolution, uh, because biology evolution in biology does not have a goal. <laughs> it is it is uh, the, the individuals who are finding new niches to survive will uh, survive and and they will thrive. Uh, and in some sense, evolution is like searching for novelty. It's searching for new ways to survive. Uh, and there's right. no specific goal, but tremendous variety and tremendous success has resulted uh, from, from this process. And that's something that we are now starting to capture, at least realize that we should capture that in order to make uh, even engineered systems much more complex than they are today. On the, uh, on the other hand, um, programming a system without 
any clear-cut objectives. To some extent, though, the, the implicit in that, though, implicit in that is um, the system obviously doesn't know, but it has infinite time, and it doesn't necessarily die unless power or memory runs out. Is there any way to give the agents um, a time objective, one where to basically encode the notion or intuition around self-preservation? Yeah, sure. It it is possible. Um, evolution is uh, or evolution computation is well um, positioned um, to optimize multiple objectives using multi-objective optimization as a as a mathematical technique. So you can specify multiple objectives. As I said, one of them might be um, the performance in a task, which might be how fast the robot runs, for instance. And another objective might be just diversity, uh, which is uh, help help helpful objective in that it might allow you to discover more innovative solutions. Uh, but you could also add an objective for conserving energy or looking pretty or, or <laughs> whatever it is, and, and you can optimize towards those multiple objectives. You will find then in multi-objective optimization, as always, some solutions that perform really well along um, the performance and others who are very conservative, perhaps, and others who look vicious, and you get to select, of course, wh which solutions you like. This might be useful, for instance, if you are creating game characters uh, where it's not just that they should l do well in a game, but when you have human interaction, they should also look good to humans. And, and that's a yeah. totally different objective, and you get to pick things that work in, in, in ways that would be hard to capture in, in objectives mathematically. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, and, and, uh, uh, so one of the things you so randomize the parameters of, of a network around the features of a, of a behavior or some object. Um, is there any sense as well in research of randomizing some controller which controls for a mix of goal parameters where you're not just, it's not one goal, randomized parameters to reach that goal, but rather randomize the parameters of the goals themselves. So beauty versus fitness versus, you know, food sure. consumed and just tune and tweak, figure out which mix of objectives and how that plays out over time. Yeah, of course. This, yes, I, absolutely. This is this is very current research, actually. Um, and um, uh, so, one question is: Can we um, can we choose objectives that uh, encourage interesting solutions to emerge? And in some cases, we could, for instance, synthesize those objectives by characterizing what behaviors exist, and then try to encourage very different kinds of behaviors, classify them. Uh, for instance, if you try to evolve pretty images or you try to evolve interesting behaviors on agents, we could let the system run for a while and then artificially generate objectives. It's also possible to use humans in the loop, uh, interactive evolution, that there could be human judgment uh, in deciding which ones, especially in uh, along goals like, that, like uh, how uh, beautiful something is or how appealing or how human-like a behavior is. It's very difficult to do it in any other way except uh, utilizing human input, and that can be uh, brought in. So multi-objective optimization is a branch of, of math that has existed for a while, and that can be brought over. But in evolution, we can also extend it in, in these ways, generate synthetic objectives, uh, cover the whole possible space of different solutions, give everyone a different objective a little bit in order to maintain diversity and, and encourage creativity, uh, which is not the standard multi-objective approach. Um, so, But these are current ideas, and so far what we know and understand perhaps is that really complex 
um, solutions require something like that. It requires a mechanism for creating stepping stones, maintaining diversity, probably using multiple objectives. The best way of doing that is still open research question. Interesting. Okay. Um, and given any system at any given starting point running that um, multiple iterations over you know time, how do the answers tend to look from from the cluster perspective? Do they cluster? Do they do you get some interesting weird divergence? So uh, are you thinking about the solution after we've, we've constructed it, or are you thinking about this, uh, the, the process of searching for the solution? The notion that if you run the same, you run the same program over and over and over again, how uh, okay. often do the solutions tend to converge to the same idea? Yeah, yeah so when we talk about um, evolution computation as a way of solving problems, uh, discovering solutions that are uh, optimal or as good as possible. Um, so... In these uh, complex domains, uh, like maybe uh, simulated uh, multi-legged robots that are walking, um, and they are walking in challenging conditions, a slippery slope or an, an, a field with obstacles, uh, there are probably, and usually are, we've seen it, many different solutions that will work. Um, and if you run the evolution multiple times, you probably will discover um, some different solutions. Now, um, there are many paths of constructing that same solution. I mean, you have a population and you have some solution components discovered here and there. So there are many different ways of evolution uh, for evolution to run and discover roughly the same kind of a walk where you may be using, using three legs to move forward and one to push you up uh, uh, the slope if it's a slippery slope. Uh, so you do relatively reliably discover the same solutions, but you also, if you run it multiple times, you will discover others. And, and this is also a new direction uh, in our recent direction in evolutionary computation that um, the standard formulation is that you are running a single run of evolution and you try to, in the end, get the optimum. And everything in a population supports in finding that optimum. Uh, but in very complex domains, um, especially in domains where things might be changing, uh, the robot might be uh, losing its leg, there might be wear and tear. In a stock market, the conditions might change. There might be new attacks in, in, a, in a computer system that you're trying to defend. Uh, it's actually a good idea uh, to try to run evolution so that you, are, you get a whole population of possible solutions, not just supporting one, but encouraging others that are good as well, but not the same. And you try to get that by maybe running multiple runs and then combining the populations or encouraging diversity, encouraging different objectives to different, for different individuals. And in that sense, get the whole picture of the landscape, what possible solutions are there and what are they good at, and then keeping it. Because uh, when you deploy the system, you want to have that kind of robustness. You want to be able to solve the problem, but you also want to be able to perhaps adapt quickly or even without adaptation, be able to deal with no, new situations. That's, again, a current uh, research and expanding the standard no notion of, of what a solution is and how we get it. Got it. Um, could you talk about the term evolution, right? And it's, and it, there's, it's inspired to some extent by, by biology. Can you expand a bit on, on how formal borrowing from that field is in terms of sure. evolution computation and how you're driving towards potentially um, deepening the, the metaphor? Yes, it is really a metaphor. It's a motivation and inspiration um, in, in a lot of this um, in machine learning. I mean, some machine learning is simply, you know, statistics. I mean, it's not simple, obviously, but it is really based on statistics and it's, it's mathematics-based. But some of the inspiration in evolutionary computation and neural networks and reinforcement learning really comes from biology. 
Uh, but it doesn't mean that it's, we are trying to systematically replicate what we see in biology. We take the components we understand, or, or maybe even misunderstand, but we take components that make sense and put them together into a computational structure. Uh, and that's what's happening in evolution, too. We take uh, some of the core ideas at the very high level of abstraction are the same. So, in particular, there's selection acting on variation. That's the main principle of evolution in biology, and it's also in computation. Um, and if you take a little bit more details, we have a population, uh, and everyone is evaluated, and then we select the best ones, and those are the ones that reproduce the most, and we get a new population that's more likely uh, to be better than, than the previous uh, population. Um, and um, we also have operators like uh, crossover and mutation, um, acting upon genes, uh, and, and that's also biologically motivated. But there's a lot of biology that is not in, in, in these computational algorithms. Uh, for instance, um, the genes are really a starting point for constructing an individual and, and replicating behavior. There's a huge influx of um, indirect processes, first genetic regulatory networks, the genes express uh, that can be expressed only in context of other genes, and there's a lot of modulation of what gets expressed. There are epigenetic phenomena that are inherited but are not in genes. They are something that maybe is attached to genes, like methylation molecules. And, um, and then uh, there's also developmental processes that most uh, biological systems adapt and learn during their lifetime as well. Uh, in humans, the genes specify really a very weak starting point. When a baby is born, there's very little behavior that, that they, can, they can perform. But over time, they interact with the environment, and that neural network gets, gets set in, uh, into uh, a system that actually deals with the world. Um, so, yes, there's actually some work in trying to incorporate some of these ideas, but, but that is very difficult, and we are very far from actually saying that we really model biology. Now, um, there is this um, a National Science Foundation-funded um, science and technology center called Beacon. Uh, it's now halfway through its 10-year um, <laughs> existence, um, and it's a $50 million center centered at the MSU, uh, Michigan State. There's also Washington University, Texas, and Idaho and North Carolina A&T. Um, and the idea there is to cross-foster this kind of um, ideas uh, about biological evolution in informing compu computing and computer science in, in um, illuminating biological phenomena. And it has been working very well. Mostly it's been going from computational modeling to biology. Um, it is quite a bit more difficult to take ideas in biology that we are discovering and having a computational interpretation that helps, say, engineering better robots. Uh, but that's happening as well. Um, and, and there are many such ideas that are, are up for grabs still. So there's a lot more that can be done. Interesting. Can you talk a bit about the work, how, how these evolutionary computations have been applied in practice? In yeah, sure. So the evolutionary algorithms have existed for quite a while, from John Holland and, and, and many others in Europe, too. Um, other groups have, have uh, created similar ideas for decades, since the 70s. And uh, a lot of it has to do with engineering applications, uh, trying to build a better power grid and control it and, and many other control tasks. And, and just general nonlinear optimization. Now, um, what got us really hooked in this area was that there are these demonstrations where evolution not only optimizes something that you know pretty well, but also comes up with something that's truly novel, something that you don't anticipate. So for us, it was this one application where we were evolving a controller for a robot arm. Oscar 6, it was six degrees of freedom, but you only needed three to really control it. And one of the dimensions is that the robot can turn around its vertical axis, the main axis. Now, the goal is to get the fingers of the robot to a particular location in 3D space that's reachable. And it's pretty easy to do. 
So we were working on putting obstacles in the way and accidentally disabled the main motor, the one that turns the robot around its main axis. We didn't know it. We ran evolution anyway, and evolution learned and, and evolved, uh, found a solution that would get the fingers in a, in, a, in a goal, but it took five times longer. We only understood what was going on when we put it on screen and looked at the visualization. What the robot evolved to do uh, was that uh, when the target was, uh, was, say, all the way to the left, and it needed to turn the, around the main axis to get the arm close to it, it couldn't do it because it couldn't turn. So instead, it um, uh, turned the arm uh, from the elbow um, or shoulder, uh, the other direction, away from the goal, then swung it back real hard, and because of inertia, the whole robot would turn around its main axis, even when there was no, no motor. So this was a big surprise. We caused big problems to the robot. We disabled big important component of it, but it still found a solution of dealing with it, utilizing inertia, utilizing the physical simulation to get where it needed to go. Uh, and this is exactly what you would like in a, in a machine learning system. It innovates. It finds things that you did not think about. If you have a robot stuck on a rock in Mars or it loses a wheel, you'd still like it to complete its mission. And, and you know, using these techniques, we can figure out ways for it to do so. And I have many other examples, and there are other people who, too, who have, who have examples of this. Another one is in, in just in my class, an assignment in AI was to develop a game-playing robot that would, I mean, um, an agent that plays uh, five in a row. You place X's and O's on a grid and, and try to get five in a row. Um, and uh, there were many approaches, including um, neural networks learning to imitate humans, including some rule-based systems. And, but the winner was an evolution system, evolved neural network, that uh, evolved to make the first move to uh, a location really far away, million, million uh, coordinate. And what happened then, everybody else was expanding the memory to capture that move until they ran out of memory and crashed. And in that tournament, of course, this is uh, system one. Very creative way of winning, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's something that you don't anticipate, and it's always great to see that. Uh, we have other examples. Is um, a, a personal satellite assistant for uh, shuttle bay astronauts. They need tools, they need displays, and it would be a satellite that hovers next to the astronaut. But there's only limited space where you can attach jets so it can move. And we simulated this in 2D, and we found that you couldn't even stop it. I mean, if it was going to a location, there was no way to stop because it didn't have the jets that would oppose it. But what it learned to do instead was to overshoot the target and then turn on a jet that would force it to spin around a little bit. And once it spun about uh, one rotation, it uh, fired the other jet so that it would stop the spin. But because it had overshot, the spin actually also moved it back just one single body length, and it ended up right on the target. A very creative way of solving a problem we didn't even know was, was possible to solve. And uh, there are many other, other such um, examples. I can go on forever, but one more. That's the um, Jeff Kloon just recently um, um, was working on multi-legged walking and was trying to find out how robust it is uh, and was telling it that um, it was multiple legs, six or eight, uh, that, you, that there was a leg that was disabled. It wouldn't touch the ground. And then he was specifying this leg and that leg. They can't touch the ground and this leg and that leg. What would happen if you disable all the legs? Well, you know, it couldn't do anything, right? Well, instead, evolution discovered that it could, with a very simple move, flip the robot around and its feet weren't touching the ground, but its elbows were and it could walk on its elbows, on its back. And it's a great solution. Again, not something that you anticipate is even possible, but it comes out. So in this manner, evolution can be creative. If you give it diversity, if you give it representations that, and allow it to explore, it can discover solutions that are truly novel uh, and interesting. Uh, and therefore, I think it has a lot of power. 
it's not just copying the data, uh, like in big data and deep learning, most of the time you are learning a task that you already know, weather prediction, stock market prediction. But in here, we are being creative. We are doing design of new things, uh, not just predicting what will happen, but we are creating objects that don't exist already. And then uh, some of those can be very creative. Yeah, that's fascinating. What's the practical application of this kind of learning and flexibility you think in industry, um, you mentioned the Mars rover kind of figuring out when it's stuck in a ditch how to respond. Um, do you see robots and, and agents being programmed with this sort of on-the-fly, ad hoc, exploratory creativity? Well, sure. Those, those I think that what's happening now is that the technology is ready to be taken out of the world. We've developed the methods for a decade or more, and we developed demonstrations like we just uh, talked about, uh, and now it's convincing we have to, that that it works, and and we have we have to take it out to the world and find these applications where it makes a difference. So yeah, I mean, building robots uh, is quite a good application. The robots would have to be uh, safe, and they would have to be robust, and they would have to work even under conditions that they were not explicitly programmed for. Uh, they go into rubble. They they go into mud. Uh, they uh, there are other agents in the world that are acting in surprising ways. Uh, and this is what we can evolve. We can do it in simulation, a lot of it, uh, but also we can do it on, on, on live robots. And there's a whole branch of AI called evolution robotics where people evolve behaviors for robots on, on real physical robots. Now, but there's lots of software agents where this is useful too. And for instance, game agents. Game players certainly, I mean, if you are in a simulated environment, I mean, it's not just games for entertainment. It could be games for education. Or it could be virtual reality in general. Um, and, and in virtual reality, there's lots of behaviors that need to be discovered in order to make the experience interesting, realistic, um, uh, and, and, uh, and effective. So we can discover behaviors that change as a learner uh, interacts with the system and creates more interesting challenges. We can, for instance, in this competition called Bot Prize, uh, a couple of years ago, the goal was to pass the Turing test for GameBot, create a GameBot that's indistinguishable from humans in their behavior, not verbally. There was no discussion of uh, language involved. It was uh, in Unreal Tournament, so you pick up weapons, you attack, you take cover, you jump around, you shoot. Uh, so it's behavior like that, and, and gamers know who the person is and who the bot is, by and large. So the goal was there to learn or evolve behavior that would be indistinguish indistinguishable from human behavior. And indeed, it took a couple of years, five years, five competitions, but eventually we got there, uh, and we were able to evolve behavior for the game agent that was indistinguishable from humans, in the sense that uh, half the judgment were human and half were bot. And it was interesting also because half the human players were just as less human than our bot. So you can say that we are at that level now. Um, yeah. and, and this is difficult to specify in any other way, but, uh, but it can mathematically write code um, rules, but, but we can discover it through evolution. Uh, and there might be many other such applications optimizing uh, web design uh, and maybe creating attacks on the system and defenses against those attacks, like a co-illusory arrangement, optimizing uh, traffic in freeways, uh, traffic lights uh, on, on, on roads, um, energy consumption. I'm sorry? Or in networks. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, so this is something that hasn't really been done yet. Everybody has data. 
And now it's popular now to take that data and learn something with it and learn to predict. And then maybe if you have a couple of different solutions, if you know how to predict, you can pick the better one. What evolution gives us is a whole new way of discovering those solutions automatically from a much, much broader pool, including some creative solutions. So I think that there's really a lot of potential applications that we haven't really even thought of as applications yet. Great. Um, no, no, thank you. And then, and what would you say for you is the most exciting direction of research um, to conclude? Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. So technically, scientifically, I think that this idea that in order to build really complex systems, we need to be able to use stepping stones. Uh, that, I think, is, is right now um, the most promising future direction. Uh, we have some ways of, of finding those, including novelty, uh, diversity, and maybe multiple objectives, uh, but that's still open open question. How do we best construct stepping stones and how do we best utilize them to construct complex solutions? And that, I think, is crucial to take the solutions to the next level where they're not just optimizing, say, uh, how fast a robot runs or how well a rocket um, is flown and is stable, but actually behavior like communication in teams or, or learning in agents uh, or memory. Um, now, and also another similar topic is we didn't really talk about, but indirect encoding, uh, where you code the structure not just in a genome one-to-one, the piece of genome maps to a piece of a solution, but methods that are indirect, that there's an, a step or, or stage of learning and development after the individual is created from the genes. And that might be with interaction in, 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 with an environment uh, that it becomes better. So this kind of a, it's very much motivated by biology, uh, but it's also computationally an interesting step of complexity, adding epigenetics, genetic regulatory networks, or learning uh, to construction of these, these uh, systems. But by far, I think right now, what I'm most excited about is to take these techniques to the real world. We have plenty uh, of power already. And part of it is also that we have the computational power because these systems run in parallel. We can evaluate solutions in parallel. We can take advantage of these cluster computers, for instance, that have uh, thousands of cores, maybe millions, uh, and, and we can take advantage of that power in order to run evolution to complexity that it hasn't seen before. And we can really start building these real-world applications. And I think right now that, to me, is the most exciting opportunity. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, thank you very much, Risto. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, remember to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.